The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. There's a point .007 deviation between the two prints. I'll have to run a tracer to triple check. Deering out. Deering, who are you talking to? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, you do, and I know exactly what you're up to. You're using those monitors to find out when those rich people's houses outside of town are empty. So you and whomever you're working with can rob them, right? Uh, uh... <sighs> you humans are all alike, always scheming to take something away from one another. That's what I like about Aldebaran. It's the kind of planet that destroys your faith in human nature. <laughs> uh, where are you going? Oh, don't worry, dearing. I don't care what petty thefts you're up to. It just confirms my opinion of the lower organisms. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, June 21st, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Yeah, humans can be very clever at stealing from one another, that's for sure. Trade barriers, prohibitions, and subsidies are one way of doing it without having to go to jail. <laughs> You know, I clearly learned two things from Donald Trump's appearance at the G7 summit held in Quebec last week. First, that Donald Trump has to be the best American president I have ever had the pleasure to see in my lifetime. And the second thing I learned is that Canada's current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, is perhaps the worst Prime Minister I've ever had the displeasure to see in my lifetime. I think the second worst was his father, Pierre, whose destructive legacy to Canada still plays a major role in the current NAFTA negotiations going on between the United States and its trading partners. And of course, the one thing that I already knew is how incompetent and complicit our major news media outlets have become in their unified leftist rant and narrative that's so hypocritical and ignorant, I just can't take it anymore. So... Free trade, supply management, fake news, international balance of payments. Just a few of the issues we'll be touching on today. As soon as you are reminded that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and, of course, all of our archived broadcasts. Well, the Trump derangement syndrome just never seems to end, and it's always against all of the chaos and confusion caused by an unprecedentedly corrupt media and body politic. And I'm not talking about bias. I'm talking about outright malfeasance that our discussion must begin. Now, given that I keep hearing about how most Canadians do not like Donald Trump, there must be a reason for it even if reason itself is not among those reasons. And I think after what you hear today, you might come to understand why I don't share that opinion of Donald Trump. Canada never had a chance against faithless Trump, writes Andrew Cohen in the June 13th London Free Press. But this piece of intellectual drivel and garbage spewing vindictive begins thusly, quote, 
We tolerated his fears and his facts. We ignored his assault on the liberal international order, his resentment of NATO, his withdrawal from the Paris Agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and the Iranian nuclear deal. We abstained at the United Nations when he moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, much as we opposed it. We winced when he lied about his trade surplus with us. We stayed at the table when he made demands on NAFTA that no self-respecting nation could accept. We recruited Brian Mulroney to seduce him, and so on and so on, the article goes, until he says, quote, For 500 days, this is how Prime Minister Justin Trudeau managed President Trump. <laughs> He's saying that Trudeau is managing Trump. And after the world's greatest charm offensive since the Khmer Rouge flirted with democracy, this was our reward, a Twitter tantrum from Air Force One. To Trump, quote-unquote, Justin is now a dishonest, weak, crafty, and treacherous person. And Canada, the Mr. Rogers of nations, is a backstabber and double-crosser consigned to hell. Three things are striking here, he writes. The first is the solidarity across politics. When Jason Kenney, John Baird, and Doug Ford are standing shoulder to shoulder with you, you're doing something right. <laughs> That's so funny. No, they're doing something left, but let me continue. The second is that Trump has handed Trudeau next year's election. The prime minister now has a cause and a constituency casting him as Captain Canada against the Americans. And the third is that our options are limited. One thing we know, negotiating rationally with a studied ignoramus is impossible. More than erratic or mercurial, he is simply faithless. He believes in nothing and no one in love, friendship, business, or politics. Trump sees the world only his way. He traffics in falsehood, humiliation, and intimidation. Against all that, we never had a chance, end quote. Well, the only thing I can say to this piece of excrement smearing the page of my newspaper is exactly what actor Robert De Niro similarly said about Trump. Because that's what he's reduced his argument to. This is what it comes down to. Name-calling, personal attacks, mindless ignorance, knowledge of things that ain't so, and an insistence that people who do know what's what are trafficking in falsehoods, humiliation, and intimidation. This is the pattern I've seen for years now. In a similar vein, John Iveson, out of Ottawa in the same day's paper under the headline Pushback Just Got So Much Easier, writes, quote, The trade war against American gherkins and strawberry jam will start on Canada Day, which is when the government's retaliatory action against U.S. steel tariffs will come into effect. A new poll by Abacus Data suggests nearly 80% of Canadians oppose Trump's tariffs. The president has made the government's job that much easier by saying in Singapore he intends to punish the people of Canada, quote, unquote, and only the people in Canada is in quotes, not the word punish. You have to, have to know this. For the comments made by Justin Trudeau in his post-G7 press conference, where the Prime Minister repeated his opinion that tariffs leveled on national security grounds against Canada were insulting and that Canadians, while polite, would not be pushed around. If the Trudeau Liberals were smart, they wouldn't let this crisis go to waste. It's the best opportunity any Canadian government's likely to have to build a rational exit ramp for supply management. Brian Mulroney is of a similar view. The former Prime Minister was in Ottawa and suggested this too will pass. He dismissed the grounds for Trump's complaints. How the hell can you have an unemployment rate of 3.8% if your trade arrangements are so bad? The answer is, they're not, he said. I told U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross that if I had a 3.8% unemployment rate, I'd still be Prime Minister of Canada, end quote. <laughs> 
Wow. I wonder if Mulroney actually considered the implications of that statement. The guy he's criticizing apparently has an enviable track record on economic performance, so in whose interests is Mulroney speaking? Why is Canada's unemployment rate so much higher than America's? Because we have more barriers, both internally and externally, in relative terms to those in the U.S. But all that aside, measures like unemployment rates have nothing whatever to do with the justice or injustice of a given trade barrier or tariff. That's a moral issue with economic implications. So those on the left are all crying chicken little over Trump's insistence on free trade. Yeah, that's free trade, I said. Free of barriers, subsidies, and other crony politics. They have an interest in barriers, subsidies, and crony politics, and crony favoritism. The complainers all depend on this kind of corruption to maintain their unearned status to whatever degree that might apply. Meanwhile, those who want to change the status quo, or as I call it, the status quo, are being shot for being the messengers of many truths. It's amazing how all of Trump's critics sound like experts on economics, don't they? After all, they all know that trade is beneficial. They all know that tariffs are harmful to those on both sides of the tariff. <laughs> you know, when I, when I first became politically active back in the late 70s and early 80s, those kinds of ideas were simply not held by a majority of people. And they were aggressively attacked by the left, especially unions and the labor movement. Opening the border to free trade was seen as a job loser for Canada, and still is by the crony class of politicians and citizens alike that still exist today. You know, we always talk about crony politicians, but in sheer numbers... If you think about it, there's a lot more crony citizens and business people in the country, aren't there? For me, the issue of free trade was simple. Any step in the direction of reduced barriers, tariffs, or government subsidies was a good thing and a step in the right direction. Any step in the direction of increased barriers, tariffs, or government subsidies was a bad thing and a step in the left direction. That's the polite word we use for wrong. So why then, you might ask, am I being so supportive of an American president who is continually being portrayed as an anti-free trader, and worse, who is openly an advocate of tariffs on selected products entering the United States from Canada and abroad? Well, the answer to the first part of that question is simple. Donald Trump is an advocate of free trade. And the answer to the second part of the question is what the rest of our show today is all about. A reconciliation of free trade with those unfree trade barriers. So here's a man himself, U.S. President Donald Trump, speaking at the G7 summit held in Charlevoix, Quebec on June the 9th, edited to those comments dealing specifically with the free trade issue. First, I'd like to uh, thank Prime Minister Trudeau for hosting this summit. It uh, has worked out to be uh, so wonderful. The people of Canada are wonderful, and it's a great country and a very beautiful country, I might add. We tackled a variety of issues and opportunities facing our nations. At the top of the list was the issue of trade, very important subject, because the United States has been taken advantage of for decades and decades, and we can't do that anymore. We had extremely productive discussions on the need to have fair and reciprocal, meaning the same. People can't charge us 270%, and we charge them nothing. That doesn't work anymore. I made a lot of 
statements having to do with clarity. We want and expect other nations to provide fair market access to American exports and that we will take whatever steps are necessary to protect American industry and workers from unfair foreign trading practices, of which really there are many, but we're getting them straightened out slowly but surely. We're linked in the great effort to create a more just, peaceful, and prosperous world. And from the standpoint of trade and jobs and being fair to companies, we are really, I think, committed. I think they are starting to be committed to a much more fair trade situation for the United States, because it has been treated very, very unfairly. And I don't blame other leaders for that. I blame our past leaders. There was no reason that this should have happened. Last year, they lost 800 — we as a nation — over the years. But the latest number is $817 billion on trade. That's ridiculous, and it's unacceptable. And everybody was told that. So I don't blame them. I blame our leaders. In fact, I congratulate the leaders of other countries for so crazily being able to make these trade deals that were so good for their country and so bad for the United States. But those days are over. Okay, a uh, question? Yes. You said that this was a positive meeting, but from the outside it seemed quite contentious. Did you get any indication from your interlocutors that you were they were going to make any concessions to you? And I believe that you raised the idea of a tariff-free G7. Is that, is that I did. You? Oh, I did. That's the way it should be. No tariffs, no barriers. That would. That's the way it should be. And no subsidies. I even said no tariffs. In other words, let's say Canada where we have tremendous tariffs. The United States pays tremendous tariffs on dairy, as an example. 270 percent. Nobody knows that. Uh, we pay nothing. We don't want to pay anything. Why should we pay? We have to — ultimately, that's what you want. You want a tariff-free. You want no barriers. And you want no subsidies, because you have some cases where countries are subsidizing industries, and that's not fair. So you go tariff-free, you go barrier-free, you go subsidy-free. That's the way you learned at the Wharton School of Finance. I mean, that would be the ultimate thing. Now, whether or not that works, but I did suggest it. And uh, people were — I guess they're going to go back to the drawing board and check it out, right? But uh, we can't have uh, an example where we're paying the United States as paying 270 percent. Just can't have it. And when they send things into us, uh, you don't have that. I will say it was not contentious. What was strong was the language that this cannot go on. But the relationships are very good, whether it be President Macron or, or with Justin. Uh, we had — Justin did a really good job. Uh, I think the relationships were outstanding. But because of the fact that the United States leaders of the past didn't do a good job on trade. And again, I'm not blaming countries. I'm blaming our people that represented our past. Uh, it's uh, got to change. It's going to change. I mean, it's not a question of 
I hope it changes. It's going to change 100 percent. And tariffs are going to come way down because we people cannot continue to do that. We're like the piggy bank that everybody's robbing, and that ends. In fact, Larry Kudlow is a great expert on this, and he's a total free trader. But even Larry has seen the ravages of what they've done with their tariffs. Would you like to say something, Larry, very quickly? might be interesting. Well, one interesting point in terms of the G7 group meeting, I don't know if they're a surprise with President Trump's free trade proclamation, but they certainly listened to it, and we had lengthy discussions about that. As the president said, well, reduce these barriers. In fact, go to zero. Zero tariffs. Zero non-tariff barriers. Zero subsidies. And along the way, we're going to have to clean up the international trading system, about which there was virtual consensus of agreement on that. And that will be a target. And these are the best ways to promote economic growth. We'll all be better at it. We'll all be stronger at it. So I myself was particularly gratified to hear my president talk about free trade. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, And it's very unfair to our farmers. Our farmers are essentially, whether it's through a barrier, non-monetary barrier, or whether it's through very high tariffs that make it impossible. And this is all over the world. This isn't just G7. I mean, we have India where some of the tariffs are 100 percent, 100 percent. And we charge nothing. You can't do that. And so we are talking to many countries. We're talking to all countries. And it's going to stop. Or we'll stop trading with them. And that's a very profitable answer if we have to do it. It was fascinating to hear Trump blame not any of the world's national leaders, but America's own past leaders for America's current trade deficit, as he views it, or imbalance. I have to talk about that a little later. Of particular note in the comments we just heard by Donald Trump was his very clear and unequivocal statement on where he stands on free trade. Didn't read about any of that in any of the mainstream media, though. Nope, just about tariffs and about how Trump is a studied ignoramus, as described by Andrew Cohen. Come to think of it, that's a perfect way to describe his commentary that I read earlier as a study in ignorance. After all, by extension, we can only now conclude that Cohen thinks those who are in favor of free trade are all studied ignoramuses because Donald Trump supports free trade. Hmm, how does he reconcile that? But here is a valid question to consider. Is Trump's support of free trade based on ideology or based on economics? Does it even matter? Keep those two questions stirring in the back of your mind as the evidence that will help answer those questions continues to gather as our show goes on. But first, a very important distinction needs to be made. And I think that beyond the economic barriers that everyone's so worried about, we have an epistemological barrier to deal with. The problem of definition, one that Donald Trump, without even knowing it, has finally cleared up for me after having heard the comments that he just made. When Trump speaks of trade balances and trade imbalances, I don't think he means what most of us are thinking. He clearly means something very different from what is perceived by economists and libertarians and conservatives when they hear those phrases. They think he's talking about some kind of actual imbalance in actual market trade as such. 
that's a part of it. But this isn't really the case. He's not talking about a balance of trade. He's talking about a balance of trade barriers. The imbalance is inherent in the barrier, not in the trade. Let me say that again. He's talking about a balance of trade barriers. And it's the trade barriers that create the imbalances to which he's referring. In fact, if truth be known, that's the only kind of trade imbalance that can objectively be cited, since when it comes to trade itself, there's no such thing as an imbalance. It drives me crazy when I hear that term. From my personally autographed copy of Man, Economy, and State by infamous libertarian economist Murray Rothbard, and on page 720, he wrote this, and this just, just speaks right to the point. Quote, More nonsense has been written about balances of payments than about virtually any other aspect of economics. This has been caused by the failure of economists to ground and build their analysis on individual balances of payments. Instead, they have employed such cloudy, holistic concepts as the quote-unquote national balance of payment without basing them on individual action and balances. Fallacies in thinking about foreign trade will disappear if we understand that balances of payment are merely built upon consolidated individual transactions and that national balances are merely an arbitrary stopping point between individual balances on the one hand and the simple zeros of a world balance of payments on the other. Worries about national balances of payment are the fallacious residue of the accident that statistics of exchange are far more available across national boundaries than they are available elsewhere. It should be clear that the principles applying to the balance of payment of the United States are the same for one region of the country, for one state, for one city, for one block, one house, or one person. Obviously, no person or group can suffer because of an unfavorable balance, quote-unquote. He or the group can suffer only because of a low level of income or assets. Seemingly plausible cries that money be kept in the United States, that Americans not be flooded with the products of cheap foreign labor, etc., take on a new perspective when we apply it to, say, a family of three Jones brothers. Imagine each brother exhorting the others to buy Jones, <laughs> to, quote, keep the money circulating within the Jones family, to abstain from buying products made by others who earn less than the Jones family. Yet the principle of the argument is precisely the same in both cases. End quote. Now that's a simple application of a principle, but very true. And I find it rather ironic that I received my autographed copy of Murray Rothbard's book at a dinner event where he and I were the only speakers. It was held at the Royal York Hotel in downtown Toronto way back in October 1983 and was actually attended by members of all parties, even the NDP. That was where I first announced the upcoming founding of the Freedom Party of Ontario, a Freedom Party, not a Libertarian Party, that was to take place on January 1st, 1984. The irony in having the economist often considered to be among the key founders of the Libertarian movement in the U.S., of course, is that Freedom Party has long criticized libertarians and the libertarian movement's advocacy of anarchy and of less government as some kind of solution to our political and economic woes. But our opposition to libertarianism is to its political dimension. 
or perhaps more accurately to its lack of political dimension. Libertarianism is really an economic theory, and that's why we're talking economics here. It's a two-dimensional political philosophy based on economic principles primarily, and those two dimensions are debit and credit. <laughs> In the field of economics, however, libertarians are among the best. So there are consistencies between the economics of libertarianism and the way it works and the politics of freedom. Unfortunately, libertarianism, the politics, is not consistent with the economic principles of libertarianism. I'm sorry, I just experienced it too long and I know about it. In fact, the libertarian interest in freedom is really secondary to its focus on economics. And that's why they, like so many conservatives, keep shouting for less government, because they mean less government in economics. Where, you know, when governance itself, outside of economics, is sorely lacking in today's body politic, for sure. So free environments, and by that I mean free of coercion environments, are essential to working economies. And I'm not here to deny that. But the priority is always freedom first. Even if it doesn't always produce a profit for a majority of voters. I think that's the lesson to be learned by something Donald Trump's trying to say, although he's still playing it a bit to the profit side. Now on this side of our upcoming bumper, Here's more from Donald Trump at the G7 conference. And when we return on the other side of our bumper, we'll be taking a closer look at the problem with economics and with libertarianism, and at one of Donald Trump's beefs with Canada, which is not actually about beef, <laughs> but about milk and dairy, among other products, and that thing called supply management. Yes, sir, go ahead. Uh, as you were heading into these G7 talks, there was a sense that uh, the American closest allies were frustrated with you and angry with you, and that you were angry with them, and that you were leaving here early to go meet for more friendlier talks with Kim Jong-un in Singapore. And I'm wondering if you, well, if, you, if you view it the same way, and do you view the U.S. alliance system shifting under your presidency yeah. away Who are you with, out of curiosity? CNN. I figured. Fake news, CNN. The worst. Uh, but, you know, I could tell by the question. I have no idea you were CNN after the question. I was just curious as to who you were with you with CNN. Uh, I would say that the level of relationship is a 10. We have a great relationship. Angela and uh, Emmanuel and Justin. I would say the relationship is a 10. And I don't blame them. I blame, as I said, I blame our past leaders for allowing this to happen. There was no reason this should happen. There's no reason that we should have big trade deficits with virtually every country in the world. I'm going long beyond the G7. There's no reason for this. It's the fault of the people that preceded me. And I'm not just saying President Obama. I'm going back a long way. You can go back 50 years, frankly. It just got worse and worse and worse. You know, we used to be a nation that was unbelievably cash flow oriented, had no debt of any consequence, and they'd build the highway system. We built the inter, you know, the interstate system out of, virtually out of cash flow. And it was, it was a lot different. No, we have a very good relationship, and I don't blame these people, but I will blame them if they don't act smart and do what they have to do, because they have no choice. I'll be honest with you, they have no choice. They're either going to make the trades fair, because our farmers have been hurt. You look at our farmers. For 15 years, it, the, the graph is going just like this, down. Our farmers have been hurt. 
Our workers have been hurt. Our companies have moved out and moved to Mexico and other countries, including Canada. Now, we are going to fix that situation. And if it's not fixed, we're not going to deal with these countries. But the relationship that I've had is great. So you can tell that to your fake friends at CNN. The relationship that I've had with uh, the people, the leaders of these countries, has been I would really rate it on a scale of 0 to 10. I would rate it a 10. That doesn't mean I agree with what they're doing, and they know very well that I don't. So we're negotiating very hard tariffs and barriers. As an example, the European Union is brutal to the United States. They don't take — and they understand that. They know it. They, when I'm telling them, they're smiling at me. You know, it's like the, the gig is up. It's like the gig is up. They're not trying to — there's nothing they can say. They can't believe they got away with it. Canada can't believe it got away with it. Mexico. We have a $100 billion trade deficit with Mexico, and that doesn't include all the drugs that are pouring in because we have no wall. But we are. We started building the wall, as you know. $1.6 billion, and we're going to keep that going. But a lot of these countries actually smile at me when I'm talking. And the smile is we couldn't believe we got away with it. That's the smile. So it's going to change. It's going to change. They have no choice. If it's not going to change, we're not going to trade with them. Sitting here in Canada, you've attacked the U.S. press back home, but you've also done it now on foreign soil. I guess I want, I'd like to ask you why you do that. And do you think because the U.S. press is very dishonest, much of it. Not all of it. Oh, I have some folks in your profession that are uh, with the U.S., in the U.S., citizens, proud citizens there reporters. These are some of the most outstanding people I know. But there are many people in the press that are unbelievably dishonest. They don't cover stories the way they're supposed to be. They don't even report them in many cases if they're positive. So there's tremendous um, — there's tremendous — you know, we, I came up with the term, fake news. It's a lot of fake news. But at the same time, I have great respect for many of the people in the press. Thank you all very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. so much. Well, it's easy, Tanya. Yeah, look, it's like I told you, yeah. you, just remember everything has been played. I envy you. Not because you're wealthy and you're intelligent. Just, just because you're free. You're free to go anywhere you want, anytime you please. You're not? I am an employee of Sinaloa. I work for Mr. Velosi. He won't let me leave. He says I'm too valuable a commodity. It's a real credit to the human race, huh? He's a monster. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it is possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. 
check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. And if ever there were a discussion based on that theme, it is today's discussion. You know, to listen to all of the arguments being made about free trade versus controlled trade, or, you know, or controlled by government trade, you would think that such an argument was an economic one, wouldn't you? But I don't think I would call it an economic argument. I don't think that's so. One of the problems with economics as such is that economically, you can argue any side of any interest and still make some sort of case. You can still make a case. You can still make a positive case for whatever postulate you put forward economically. But the argument regarding free trade is a moral one. Because we're talking about prohibiting the use of physical force in human relationships. In this case, it happens to be an economic relationship. Now, not too many people apprehend this, though there are exceptions, as we'll soon hear. Any economic consequences earned or suffered by a given nation are the consequence of the moral postulate on which that nation is based. You can see it everywhere you look. Look around the world. The piss-poor countries and the, you know, the dejected backward countries all have backward philosophies and backward ideologies that are running their nation. And that is the explicit distinction between the United States and the vast majority of nations on the face of the globe. As a general observation, it's very credible to say that the further left a nation's moral compass, the more economically disadvantaged will be its people. Economists look at everything as something to be measured in economic terms, and that's what you know, economics is really about. It's about measuring and comparing things. And unfortunately, that includes people. People in economics are not referred to as people. If they tend to forget, even though you can't forget it, that individuals are agents of action. They are the free agents that comprise what we call the market. But an economic measurement doesn't look at them that way. It looks at human beings as a resource, a human resource. Even though the real resource isn't the human being, it's labor, it's knowledge, it's skill, it's the ability to produce. That's the resource. So people themselves are classified as a resource economically when in fact they are, no, they are no such thing. We exploit resources, hence the thinking that to hire someone for a job is exploitation, you see, there, there, there's that connection. And of course exploit merely means to make use of, yet people don't themselves make use of that word in its intended meaning, because they apply it not economically, but socially and politically. The word exploit means something different then, doesn't it? Because if you're talking about social and political exploitation, at its heart, that kind of exploitation has that sense of theft, the sense of injustice, the unfairness, the inequality, and a whole host of other negativities associated with capitalism. But rarely with the truly exploited, you know, exploitive system, which is always some form of collectivism, socialism, communism, fascism, Marxism, so economics is merely about measuring and comparing things. What one chooses to measure or compare is completely subjective. That is, it's determined 
by the purpose toward which the required information will be used. And we see that all the time in some very, very sinister ways that we're seeing lately. You know, governments through our census data collect it, and they collect economic information there too. They use that information to compare income and wealth between differing groups along arbitrary terms, which are, in their case today, because they're all a bunch of racists, racial and ethnic grounds. It's on our census. And then they use these statistics as evidence of inequity and of, so, of you know, some sort of social problem that requires amelioration, in the words of Canada's constitution, as it was constituted by our first Trudeau. So you can see the problem. Now, as to the current debate, I'm sure I'll have a chance to talk to him in more detail about this on a future show, but Salim Mansour sent around a very interesting observation to a number of us, and I'd like to share parts of that with you, and, and it all relates to the G7 summit and what he saw there. He says, right across the spectrum, our elite is being exposed as a result of the crisis over NAFTA for what they are. Incompetent, inept, self-serving, globalist, and patriotism in this instance is what Samuel Johnson once said, the last refuge of scoundrels. <laughs> Justin and his crew have placed Canada in a lose-lose proposition over Na NAFTA. Canadians have been ill-advised and ill-informed of what the problems with NAFTA is and why President Trump is determined to renegotiate or break NAFTA unilaterally, writes Salim. Canada cannot win if Justin and his crew want to play the retaliatory game of raising tariffs on American goods and services. Canada's economy has already begun to feel the effects of measures President Trump indicates he might take. What will be the response of Justin and crew? What does Her Majesty's loyal opposition have to offer in return? <laughs> he comments, we are screwed. American politics, he writes, is undergoing a sea change that has not been seen by our generation. For any sense of how great is the tectonic shift in American politics, one has to go back to the Depression years and the New Deal of FDR. President Trump is the agent of this shift, and none in Ottawa or other provincial capitals seem to have any sense of this reality. Justin is simply out of his league when dealing with President Trump's USA. The magonomics of President Trump's policies have sent tsunami-like tidal waves through global politics while Canada under Justin is trying to hold on to the EU straws from drowning. The sheer ridiculousness of all of this is that our only opposition party thought it worthwhile to join the Liberals in voting for a motion condemning President Trump at the G7. Just think about this. It is as if such a resolution will even have an effect of a fly-type sting to President Trump and the massive rolling momentum of the U.S. economy at nearly full employment levels not seen since the 1950s. And then, then Salim points out, quote, I'm not simply a critic here of our totally inept elite. Our media has been exposed as bankrupt as that of the U.S. mainstream media and a tool of the elite, instead of educating the masses of the real situation. So the whole supply management issue, which we're going to be talking about next, which is one of those issues that Trump keeps raising, you know, our milk prices and things like that. Supply management really means supply control and economic mismanagement. Because if one quote-unquote controls the market, there's nothing to manage except the controls themselves. And they're not even managed. They're just enforced by 
you know, by the law at the point of a gun. And there's a different kind of law. We're not talking about the law of supply and demand. We're talking about the law of a man. The law of supply and demand works only in a free environment. When either supply or demand is controlled by others, force is the necessary quote-unquote tool required. That's how they refer to it. Because that's the only way to physically affect the otherwise voluntary choices of the people whose choices you want to change to your own benefit. And that force is not artificial, as some would deny. The force is real. It's the prices that result that are artificial because it's the consequence of a force. And we'll be hearing one such denial coming up next from the Andrew Lawton Show of March 23rd, as it was aired on CFPL AM 980 in London, featuring a debate on supply management between two very opposed speakers on the subject. The question, should Canada dismantle supply management, arguing yes is David Clement of the Consumer Choice Centre, and arguing no is Bruce Sargent, who is the head of Farm Boy Productions and part of a dairy farming family himself. All right, so we're going to start with David on this one as the gentleman arguing, yes, we should abolish it. Why is it that you think supply management needs to go in Canada? Why is the status quo not working? So I think there are three main reasons why we need to dismantle supply management. The The first is that it's a selective benefit. So it's a form of government protection exclusively for uh, dairy and poultry farmers. It's not a, a luxury that's afforded to other farmers, whether you, you be beef, uh, fish, pork, etc. Uh, so in that nature, it's unfair. And what happens from that is we see inflated prices, so much so that it actually uh, increases the average yearly grocery bill for Canadian families anywhere between 300 to $500 a year. And for poor Canadians, that's about 2.5% of their yearly income. That pushes 190,000 Canadians from above the poverty line to below the poverty line. And just based on that alone, I think that's a, that's a good enough reason to, uh, to dismantle it, which leads me to the third, which is it's, it's very um, problematic for our trade negotiations. It's a protection that other countries do not have in the same way. Or to the same extent, it makes negotiating NAFTA particularly difficult. It was a real wrench in CETA, which I'm sure we'll get to. Uh, and so those are my main three reasons for wanting to dismantle it. All right. Well, you touched on one thing that we will get to very shortly, and that is the impact on consumers. But I'll go to you, uh, Bruce, more generally here first. Why do you think we shouldn't? Why do you think the status quo is working out fine? So I have an issue with the status quo word because supply management has evolved a lot in the last 50 years. So 50 years ago, uh, it was actually a beef farmer from Western Canada that looked around the world and saw complete chaos and instability, and that's a quote, in dairy markets in virtually every country comparable to Canada. And so that instability was backed up by artificial subsidies um, because there was such huge fluctuation in prices in these commodities that we're here to talk about. So fast forward 50 years, it's 2018. When you look at the world market for dairy, it is absolutely chaotic. And there's still these multi-billion dollar subsidies that governments are using in markets that don't have supply management. And so 50 years ago, my grandfather went to the, the processor and, and got a different price every day. Now we know what our price is going to be, and, it, and it's stable, and it, it goes up and down as costs do, and that's the benefit of supply management. It, it, it's comparable to American prices, and we've always got to remember that costs are different across the border, but it's a system that works, 
and it's a system that I definitely am proud to defend. So as far as consumer impact is concerned, do you think there is a, a cost to consumers that can be linked to supply management? And is that substantive enough in your view to, rec- to basically warrant any change? In the U.S., they spend 9% of their income on uh, disposable income on food. In Canada, it's 11. So there, there's that 2% difference on all foods. I, I know that when we're talking about supply management, these numbers are very carefully picked in border prices that, aren't, that show unfavorably on us, but that's not accurate to the national averages. Yeah, that just the, that just isn't true. If we looked at Milton Feathered, so first off, it's peer-reviewed research. Secondly, it's won a Canadian Public Policy Award for being the best uh, interdisciplinary research on any subject. So it's that definitely the cream of the crop. When we look at the cities in which they use, they actually use the cheapest markets in Canada, which is Montreal, Vancouver, Winnipeg, and Windsor. And they use those, and they compare them against the median average in the in the the average in the United States. Yeah, but is Windsor not a problematic city to include in any study? Because I know even in London, we're an hour from mm-hmm. the border, and we very frequently go across to do our shopping. Windsor, even more so. Yeah, but that that leads that actually helps my argument because that puts downward pressure on prices in these border cities, so that they have artificial to- downward pressure. I mean, it's not artificial. A loss leader in the U.S. is transferred to the farmer because there's no supply management. They can pay the farmer whatever the supposed world market price is. In Canada, they need to cover the negotiated price between the processors, the farmers, and the government that happens every single year and is very transparent. But are they not both artificial then? It's just a matter of which artificial construct you prefer? And one is forced by government and one isn't. One harms farmers and one doesn't. Uh, you could argue that one benefits 12,000 farmers at the expense of 36 million consumers. I mean, I, if you look at it in terms of what's fair and what's equitable... That 12,000 number also isn't fair. There's 12,000 farms, dairy farms, only dairy farms. That's not counting the other, the poultry farms that are under the same supply management system. Sure. There, there can be multiple families. So that, that number is actually hundreds of thousands of people that you're impacting. Let me ask you this. Uh, how much do you pay per liter of milk, roughly? I'd say probably $3 a liter. And how much do you think the farmer receives from that? I've seen the numbers, but, but tell them. <laughs> it's, it's about $0.70. Cents. So you're paying... I paid uh, about $4 for four liters of milk in Guelph last week, and the farmer... I've re- got to find your store. Yeah. Instead. My, the farmer, I'm getting ripped off. <laughs> the farmer receives about $0.70 cents of that. So... It's it's just it's so complicated to try to explain, but you, the farmer receives seventy cents. Um, Stats Can says that for every dollar of revenue on the farm, there's for dairy farm, there's there's seventy cents of expense. So you you like we we can't get into um, the cost of feed, the cost of hydro, the cost of living. There's so many things that go into operation of a dairy farm that sometimes seventy cents doesn't cover the bills, and and to say that. This is like um, we deserve to be on the sunshine list because we're we're. I didn't uh, say that. <laughs> you inferred it, but there's a big difference between having a negotiated price that each farm gets fairly and having a fixed income. That's not what we're getting. We're getting a negotiated price that you still have to 
be efficient and work hard to receive and there there's it's just so much more complicated than I, I will ask you, David, to, yep. to Bruce's point here. When you are looking at a pretty small margin that the dairy farmers are, are saying they get on this, mm-hmm. is there not a, a problem of not a sustainable industry at all once you abolish the only thing that gives them that protection? I mean, if we look at other agri- agricultural sectors, the answer would be no. Uh, we look at Canadian beef. So Canadian beef flows both – American and Canadian beef flow both ways over the border mm-hmm. – the ability for us to trade both ways over the border hasn't caused this mass exodus of beef farmers. In fact, Canadian beef farmers are some of the best in the world in terms of what we export. Um, and so they operate under similar circumstances, under similar operation operational provisions like Bruce mentioned, and they've seemed to make it work. And they're prosperous because they've capitalized on those export opportunities. I, 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 I'm going to go back to something that I, I didn't get to before. And that dairy is very different from beef, and we can't we can't compare the two because my milk gets picked up every other day. Beef does not go to market every other day. Eggs get picked up multiple times per week. If we go on to an open market and get rid of supply management, the price that my family will receive will fluctuate on a day-to-day basis while costs stay the same. Well, welcome to the world that the rest of us live in. By the way, that fluctuation is what guarantees lowest prices and the longest survival for businesses. But everybody lives that way. That's what the market is all about. The market does not remain static. And this is what a lot of these people are trying to do is to create a static market, a market that cannot grow, that cannot adapt, that cannot change as the needs of people change. The more you entrench something with government, the more it becomes status and will never, ever change. Now, just some of the comments that we heard in that discussion. It, you know, one of the speakers said he doesn't like the term status quo because supply management has evolved. Well, it's still a status enforced by government which negates rights. That's what it is. It didn't evolve into anything. It just hung around for 50 years. That's, that's not an argument. And to say that it's a system that works, what you're saying is it's to the benefit of some and to the detriment of others. Every system works when you argue it on economic grounds, <laughs> or it doesn't work if you argue it on economic grounds. depends on which side of that equation there is. And there's only winners and losers when force is involved. And that's what the problem is here. There's an element of force in the supply management. And that's the only grounds on which we could even dare to say there's a winner and a loser. Because otherwise, any transaction that occurs, it's a win-win situation. There was some attempt at equating a free market with a controlled market, that both are artificial constructs. But as Clement pointed out, one is forced by government and the other isn't. And Sargent returns, one harms farmers and one doesn't. Well, that's an invalid argument. Because if if the issue is harm to the person who's not getting the sale, then by this argument, if anybody chooses to buy, say, a soft drink instead of a bag of milk, then that person is harming the milk producer, isn't he? And, hey, why shouldn't we just pass a law to force people not to buy soft drinks and force them to buy milk? Tell me, please, how that is any different from what's happening right now. What's the difference? Can you see the sheer contradiction and subjectivity, the self-interest at the expense of others in this statement? Now, here's a story for you about supply management. 
Thrown Under the Cheese Truck Wheels by Andrew Coyne, his commentary of June 14th of this year in the National Post and London Free Press, and I quote, How did supply management, of all things, come to be at the center of everything? It has somehow become the central issue not only of our domestic politics, but of international trade talks. It was the pretext for Donald Trump's decision to impose tariffs on imports of aluminum and steel, and it is his most cited grievance with Canadian trade policy. It has also become a source of deep division within the Conservative Party. It was already, of course, thanks to last year's leadership race, in which Maxime Bernier made its its elimination the central plank in his campaign, as Andrew Scheer made its retention the key to his. Scheer's narrow victory was directly attributable to the votes of thousands of Quebec dairy farmers who took out party memberships for the sole purpose of ensuring Bernier's defeat. There is no serious case for supply management, a policy that is unjust inasmuch as it imposes the heaviest burden on the poorest families, as it is inefficient that locks out new farmers and deters existing farmers from seeking new markets, and that makes us look utter hypocrites in free trade talks, not only with the U.S., but with the rest of the world. And yet, every member of every party is obliged to swear a public oath of undying fealty to it. Well, not quite every member of every party. There was an exception. Of course, that was Maxime Bernier when he ran for the leadership of Canada's Conservative Party, and he chose this as his key issue. So given the popular association of conservatives and libertarians with free trade and freedom, again, a slight misassumption in most cases, one would have expected Bernier's call for free trade to be supported by those groups. But, writes Bernier in his deleted from his book to appease the conservatives, uh, chapter (laughs) 5, Live or Die with Supply Management. And I quote, I was being attacked by the very people who were supposed to constitute the core of my support, the libertarians and the staunch free market conservatives, the conservatives who were closest to me ideologically. Before I continue telling the story of how I became the only one among 14 leadership candidates to oppose supply management, it's important to explain where supply management came from and why it's such a bad policy and why it came to play such an important role in Canadian politics. As recorded in the Library of Parliament, in the 1960s, the Canadian agricultural sector experienced overproduction caused by technological advances resulting in low, unstable prices and disputes between farmers and processors. It was price instability and fluctuations in farmers' incomes that led to the creation of the supply management system, end quote. However, notes Bernier, this is part of the history of agriculture in all developed countries. It's no surprise that the government that adopted supply management was the liberal government of Pierre Trudeau. Trudeau was a typical left-wing intellectual, an admirer of communist China and Cuba, and a big fan of Fidel Castro. Before running as a liberal in the late 1960s, he had been a supporter of the CCF-NDP. He had zero understanding of economics. Wage and price controls, instituted by Trudeau in 73, nationalization of whole industries, and bureaucratic central planning were seen by the intellectual elites of that period as efficient ways to speed up economic growth and get rid of the imperfections of capitalism. There are three regulatory pillars supporting supply management, he writes. Quote, one, the control of production. Two, price fixing. And three, import control. 
In the case of supply management, beyond the very small amounts allowed into Canada tariff-free, foreign products are hit by import tariffs that range from about 150% for turkey and eggs to about 250% for chicken, yogurt and cheese, and 300% for butter. Bizarrely, many supporters of supply management won't admit that it is a system based on control and coercion. End quote. So, to answer the question, is Donald Trump's support of free trade based on ideology or on economics? Well, when Trump says that he's willing to impose tariffs on countries who, who do not rid themselves of their own tariffs, barriers, and subsidies, then he is acting in economic terms. As we heard him say about India, an American barrier against the Indian barrier would only result in profit for America. However, when Trump says, quote, no tariffs, no barriers, no subsidies, that's the way it should be, end quote, then you're talking about ideology. Because as soon as you start using the words in the context of how things should be, you're talking about an ideal. You're talking about changing what is into something that might be. So here's my personal bottom line on free trade. The problem, quote-unquote, with free trade, just as the problem, quote-unquote, with freedom, is that each of those two things benefits the general interest and not someone's specific interests. Those interests that attempt to steal from the general welfare, not contribute to it through lower prices and greater choice. This has essentially been the entire history of mankind until its brief experiment with capitalism, which in the few brief centuries it was applied has made it possible for humans to live longer, healthier, wealthier, and more independent than ever before. There's a reason for that. Because in a free society, individual values are the determining economic motivation of all economic activity. Values that extend well beyond mere existence so what's your personal balance of trade? What are you willing to pay or give up for something of a greater value? Those are questions that are going on in your mind each and every day, every time you make a transaction. And as you ponder that question, here's hoping that you value what he you hear on Just Right each week enough to invest your time and perhaps even your financial support when you join us again each and every week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And in the meantime, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Dad! Hi, Alex. What are you doing back? Everything all right? Oh, fine. Where's your mother? Sleeping. <laughs> Already? What time is it? Uh, 3.30. Oh, I lost track of time. How are you doing? <laughs> hmm. What are you doing up? Uh, well, I started reading this book, uh, Vector Calculus, The Untold Story. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't put it down. I feel like I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, well, you've been busy. Anything big going on in your life? Any, any big changes? Well, uh, I'm married now. You knew that. <laughs> Two kids and I'm president of the United States. Yeah, I read that somewhere. Listen, Dad, you know, uh, don't, don't feel guilty about all the time you have to spend working these days. I mean, we all understand. Even Andrew. 
I'm giving up my promotion, Alex. Taking my old job back. Ah, uh, Dad, what are you saying? You don't, you don't want to do that. I mean, you got, you got more power on this job. You got more money. You got more money. There's more to life than power and money, Alex. Give me an example. 